Hi guys, it's Al. Yes, I'm back, uh, taking my for my long break. Uh, I uh, had a baby boy, a beautiful boy named Logan, and uh, on no- November seventh, and so it was really exciting um, to be there for his birth, and uh, it's really really awesome. <laughs> and in studio, I have uh, my new friend Ken Jenkins. Hello, Ken. Hi there, and I'd be willing to bet it was actually your wife that had the baby, not you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She had it. I was had front row seats, and I. But I get to have it now. Uh-huh. We get to share it. Now you get to share it. <laughs> Got to give the woman credit. Yeah. I just want to make sure. I just want to do a little, one more test for for me. Test. Hello. Okay. Good. I got you. Okay. Um. Yeah. It's a little bit. It's a bit. It's a little, yeah. Okay. I think it's good. Uh, so welcome, Ken. Uh, Ken is a uh, is a uh, 9/11 truth activist and uh, also an electrical engineer and a videographer. And uh, you have a new film that you sort of compiled. It's a talk given by David Ray Griffin, one of the leading authors in the field, and uh, it's the actually the eighth talk I've worked with uh, with him. Okay. And this is the one I've been working towards for quite some time in the sense of uh, this is the one I wanted him to give and he was happy to give it. And it uh, sums up the 9-11 evidence more succinctly than any of the others. The title, please? The title is 9-11, The Myth and the Reality. Mm-hmm. And so David frames it in terms of the idea of stories and mythologies uh, because the official story is one myth and we have another story and we're trying to get people to listen to the other story right and you have uh, video going along with that uh oh like i mean because it's not just his head right talking. it's not just talking head whenever he says anything that i can graphically illustrate or with mm-hmm. a video clip then i do and i do as much of that as i can good good yeah because um he's really articulate i just bought uh christian faith and the truth or uh, 9-11 and the 9-11 and christian faith or something yeah like that. Yeah. yeah christian faith and the problem with 9-11 truth or something like that and uh, for my mother, <laughs> because uh, I'll, I'll just sort of share a little story I was starting to tell with Ken earlier. Uh, I, I kind of want to start why, by this, you know, everyone had their Thanksgiving uh, family times, or maybe you didn't because it's family time. <laughs> maybe you don't want to spend time with your family, but uh, I did. Uh, all my immediate family uh, got together on my on my side, and um, uh and that was the same weekend that the intellectual speak out came out on C-SPAN and my, my parents have the TiVo. And so I, we TiVoed it and I watched it Sunday afternoon with my sister and, um, my sister's really open to it. She, I gave her uh, Michelle Chosadovsky's book. Um, and she thought that was really interesting and, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's basically down, you know, kind of with nine eleven truth or whatever, but, um, <laughs> but it's kind of, sort of like this taboo subject because everyone knows kind of that I, this is what I think, you know, uh, but a lot of people don't want to even kind of talk about it. They want to still want to like, you know, it's, I mean, but they're still kind of political. They're sort of this democratic leftist sort of family. And my dad, my dad sort of said, you know, why do you want to waste your time going over something that you'd really don't have any power over to, even if you knew who it was. And he, he kind of has this thing where, first of all, it's not even knowable. The truth isn't even knowable. We'll never know. You know, and then he has this thing where, and even if you did, you know, why would I concern myself with something I don't have any power to change, even if I did know? And third, you're coming off like this evangelical guys, evangelist, you know, trying to convert everyone to this truth of the way you see the world, and 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 he, so he had all these three, you know, you know, these three aces, and he sort of clobbered me in the kitchen with, and and uh, 
and I got angry and frustrated and, and, and really sad that that there was maybe it was just his lack of intellectual curiosity, maybe his uh, d- denial, his um, you know stuck emotions that he has surrounding that event, those events, or just his you know, impotence to make feel like he has a make you know not a, sexually but just like socially and politically his political impotence that he has uh, uh, when it comes to what he see you know what you know this the terrible things that he does see you know and how you know he said how angry and sad he felt when bush uttered the the axis of evil phrase and he was just like don't you know that's just war talk you know just that's so i'm kind of interested in hearing you know you know just what you would say you know in response to my little my sad story over my thanksgiving vacation you know well you got three points there i'll just try to address them all Uh um uh the family thing Families are the hardest. I mean, I, all the stories that I hear from people of, you know, problems they've had talking to certain people, family's always the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, actually a, a little quote I'd like to make from a guy that did a down, about a 20-minute download of information to a family member at the end of which time he said, I wouldn't believe that even if it was true. Wow. And it's just like such an astonishing statement. I wouldn't believe it even if it was true. just shows the depth of denial, the depth of resistance, how much people really just don't want to believe this stuff. They don't want right. to hear about it. Um, so f- I, I don't recommend selling to most family members, you know, it's like, and I don't recommend selling to people that don't want to hear. It's like you, you, you test the water and if right. there's a lot of resistance, you move on because there's other people that do want to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that might help with the evangelical part of it. Um, <laughs> but then he, uh, there was the impotence part. And the first part was, um, how we can't know the truth. Right. And I disagree with that. And sure, we can't know every detail, at least until we finally get a real investigation and get subpoena power. But we have discovered an amazing amount and there's Mm -hmm. books full of information and one thing we know for certain is that the official story can't be true right and there's so many reasons it can't be true and that alone is really in a sense all we need to know that since the official story isn't true obviously we need a real investigation and we know that the uh the investigation that was done was a whitewash and so uh that's in a sense one of the things most of us are pushing for is a real investigation and one with subpoena power that Mm -hmm. none of us have um, and in terms of the impotence, uh, you know, you could say that, I suppose, about any cause and any movement, especially when it's small, um, and some don't succeed. But when they mm-hmm. do, it's only because people didn't take that attitude. And right. they, they were willing to say, look, we're going to just keep working at this. We're going to persevere. And uh, eventually we'll get the numbers and we'll win. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's happened. It's been five years. Um, you know, when when I started out, there was no truth nine eleven truth movement. Right. Um, I just basically started off on my own, giving presentations locally, and uh, knowing that it would grow, and and it has. And now it's become quite a national thing. And as of this year, two thousand six, of course, we've made a major turning point where we're in the national media. We, right. we were on the cover of Time magazine. So in terms of breaking this story, we've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still have a long way to go in terms of getting sufficient numbers of people that will pressure the powers that be into a real investigation. And and they have to have the numbers. The, the few people that do know, they can't talk about it, and they can't use it as a, as a political issue until there's enough numbers behind them. And that's true of many issues, not just this one. What? Um, why 9-11? Why, why is that such, such a, the fulcrum of, of your focus? You know, I've I've been one that's been focused on this issue for five years. Other people like David Ray Griffin for three, and, and as a... Full-time, nonstop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the reason is for me that 
this issue compared to any of the many other important valid issues out there, like, say, vote fraud, for example. Right. If I wasn't doing 9-11, maybe I'd be doing that because it's so important. Or, or getting clean money into elections is another incredibly important thing. But why 9-11 is because it has more power to catalyze change than any other issue ever. And the reason I think that is that uh, 3,000 Americans were killed. Mm-hmm. Americans care about that kind of thing. Um, many are apathetic about our government going overseas and slaughtering people, as we've done in Iraq and elsewhere. Um, it is not doesn't seem to be as much kind of personal uh, impetus to do something about that, although, of course, a lot has been done about that. But uh, when you talk about killing 3,000 Americans and when, when Americans learn that their own government did it, uh, I don't think any American is going to be okay with that. Right. And whether or not they're active or, or, or just know about it and, and are willing to vote appropriately or, or pressure um, political people or whatever, the point is that uh, it just has an incredible power to catalyze change. And and particularly around war, I, I've been involved in any war uh, activity since the 60s. Um, I'm now almost 60. <laughs> And I don't really want to spend the rest of my life just stopping wars long after they've started. That, right. that, that's, that's good. It's fine. It's wonderful that everyone's doing that. But this op- opens the opportunity to, to end war for good by stopping the source of the war, which is deception and lies and what are called false flag operations, meaning um, something like the Gulf of Tonkin incident and others where uh, there's a claim that the enemy has attacked first, and therefore, we're responding in sense in defense. Uh, you know, like we went into Afghanistan as a mm-hmm. response to uh, what happened on 9/11. And uh, more often than not, in fact, in virtually every case, if you study history, the war is based on some kind of lies and deception. Like we have weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and as people learn that, and they and as they do learn it through 9/11 that governments are incredibly ruthless and will do, not just our government, it's, it's mm-hmm. many governments have done this. Right. And it goes back through history to at least Roman times and probably way before. Yeah. Um, and that when people learn that on a mass scale, they're not going to be able to get tricked into war again right. as we were Taking tricked the, into Iraq. Take, you take the reaction out of the problem-reaction-solution equation. Right. Because that's the, that's the only place where we have the power. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, th- they provide the problem... They're hoping that we'll provide a reaction, and then they'll they have their solution. Right. And if we can, if that's where we're, the, the the power is for us is is to not go for the the scam when it when it gets. And it, you know that's already happening. Mm-hmm. This is talk of going into Iran now, mm-hmm. and people are so much more cautious now because of Iraq because mm-hmm. they know most people that we were lied to by getting into Iraq, weapons of mass destruction, and so forth. And so they're very kind of uh, looking twice and cautious and questioning about Iran, and that's an example of how it can work. Yeah. And it just 9-11 will take it to yet another level. Um, last night you, we, we were having a conversation, and, and you said uh, that, if, that if it was 9-11 truth was splattered all over the mainstream media uh, for 12 hours straight, you know, nothing but the facts for, and everyone got it, you know, that you couldn't turn on your TV without getting it. And the story, you know, was just like ridiculous. And and they said we're, we're coming out. And, oh my gosh, it's terrible, or it's great. You said it was it, it would be terrible because you know the cars would stop, you know, the trucks would stop running, the the stock market would crash, uh, you know, it it would be maybe panic. Uh, 
chaos would ensue. <laughs> well, and maybe, and and you know, I I I think that might be actually a good thing. You know, I I, I think that wouldn't be so bad really at all. Um, I, okay, maybe we can invent envision how you know how a. a those types of things are good or bad. Why you think that that would happen? And well, it's just a matter of a pace of change, is right. what we're talking about. Okay. We, we want the change. We want the revolution. We want things to be different. We want uh, the the terrible wars to stop, and we want the system to work better and in better environmental policies, so on and so forth. Um, the question is, how do we get from here to there? In the case of 9/11, the implications of it are so big, they're so vast, they have such a, in a sense revolutionary implication. Mm-hmm that were it to somehow magically get out, like you said, all at once, um, it would induce a lot of fear and chaos and panic in people, and it would have adverse effects, and people would get hurt. And by that I mean, for instance, I I do think it would have huge economic implications, Mm -hmm. um, that it would, in fact, for instance, uh, the the stock market would crash, trillions of dollars would disappear overnight. Some people might think that's a good idea, but... Really, what it would cause was an, ec- an economic breakdown that would probably exceed the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and it, and a lot of people would be very hurt. And so, if things happen more slowly and more gradually, which they are anyway, uh, then uh, it can be assimilated, it can be absorbed, and people can deal with it in a way where they don't go into full-scale panic and they don't do silly things that are destructive. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that sense, uh, gradualism, as it's called, uh, gradually changing things, things, doing things a little more slowly can be more gentle and, and just less hurtful to people. Mm-hmm. And as much as I'd like to see things change overnight, um, I also don't want to see people hurt. And, uh, and I think it's better that things happen gradually. Now, in the case of 9-11, we have no choice anyway. It's happening gradually. And there's nothing really we can do to change that because... It is a gradual process. As you were talking about with your father, people don't want to believe this. Mm-hmm. And so even when they're presented with the information, you know, I wouldn't believe that even if it was true, mm-hmm. um, they're not necessarily going to believe it anyway. And if you think about most people you know that are involved with this work and that are even active with this work, almost everybody came to it slowly. Yeah. Almost nobody turned on a dime, although some people these days, they'll see some of the really good videos we have now, and it'll definitely get their attention. Right. Um, but even so, most of them even, it's, it takes a while to absorb something this massive yeah. unless you're already fully aware of how incredibly corrupt our government is, in which case it's like, oh, well, of course. Right. Yeah. But if you're one of those, you probably know anyway. <laughs> right. You, perhaps it was the Oklahoma City bombing that you examined. In, uh, right. Yeah. And, in fact, there are people that did figure out 9-11 on the day. And, right. And I talked to these people. Someone's always kind of impressed because it took me weeks, mm-hmm. uh, many people months, and some people years. But yeah. it's not a question of how fast. But people that figured it out on the day, it's like, well, how would you know? And there's different stories, of course. Yeah. And, and some of them are people that are just so knowledgeable about what really goes on yeah. that they go, well, that's just more of that. Yeah. Uh, and I was sort of in the middle. I knew about, say, the Kennedy assassination. Right. So when I started um, researching 9-11, I saw these parallels. And so it was a pretty quick and easy conversion mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. But even so, there was a part of me that was like, God, this is so audacious. It's so big. They killed so many people. It's like, really, would they do this? Could they get away with it? Right. Uh, it was a part of me that just, you know, 5% that was just like, no, man, I don't know. It's hard to believe. Um, and my conversion actually was learning the truth of Pearl Harbor because I didn't know oh. the truth of Pearl Harbor. 
and uh, which is our listeners don't know is also um, what's called LIHOP, let it happen on purpose. Uh, it was allowed to happen. Sure, Japanese uh, actually did it, but they were coerced into it. Mm-hmm. They were manipulated into it. We had broken their codes. We knew they were coming, and uh, that's been well documented. I found out later, and there's been documentaries on TV and stuff about that. But I didn't know that, and and that had the same scale. It was just as audacious and outrageous, and uh, almost as many people died. And so I thought, okay, they do do things on that scale. And at that point, it was like, okay, this this is true, and I now need to figure out what to do about it, which was, I think, another point you mentioned with Mm -hmm. your dad is like the impetusy thing, and, and what do we do about it, and what can we do, and... The, the goal we're after is numbers. We have to get more people knowing about this to get any kind of political traction in, in any kind of a way that, that something uh, beyond just individuals can do. And so I, what I think needs to happen is we continue to need, need to continue to do everything that we're doing. Right. Which is doing radio programs like this, mm-hmm. um, making videos, talking to people, making flyers, passing them out at events, doing events. You know all the different aspects of uh, that are being tried, and and many of them successfully to get people to even look at this and to pay attention and learn and find out what's really going on. The um, with um, recently the um, the I saw uh, Alexander Cockburn, and he's got this new series out of articles, and one of them was not a friend of his, but it's in the series. Uh, I don't, I don't know, I forget the name of the guy, but it was a, it was full, filled with technical sounding jargon uh, about the collapse of Building Seven, and it was really, wow, it it, it blew away anything the popular mechanics could come up with about uh, debunking the reason or creating a real. Um, uh, fire-based explanation of why Building 7 collapsed. And I don't know if you've read it or have looked at it. Um, I tried to. You know, I got like halfway through, and I my attention span these days and my, my time is, is pretty limited. And I was... And, you know, they were saying how it was the diesel fires and how it dripped down this these uh, shafts and... <laughs> you know, and I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, I... I Okay, and then I, you know, I like. Well, I wonder, you know, and I, and I sometimes do enjoy um, play, giving, being the devil's advocate to myself, you know, oh, yeah. and, and saying, well, you know, what if it really was exactly as the official story, or mostly like maybe like uh, maybe they knew a little bit of, and it was some some incompetence going on, uh, you know, uh, you know, it made me at least re, you know, put myself in that que- that position of uh, examining some of the the debunking material and and how important it first of all do you think it is to examine what the official story is and, and some of the the what the debunkers of the of the my hop or a lie hop point of view would be you know what i'm saying like well i think it's very important to have critical thinking and right. it's, it's very important to question uh, what we're doing and to see what the debunkers are saying to to understand what the counter arguments are. Right. We have mm-hmm. made mistakes with some of our evidence. Um, there's this whole idea of a 16 foot hole in the Pentagon, which is flat out wrong because on the first floor there's a 90 foot hole. The 16 foot hole is in the second floor. And the first floor, in a one of the most publicized pictures, the first floor is obscured by a, a, um, a blast from a fire truck. And so uh, 
very good videos out there that keep repeating this mistake that uh, there's only a 16 foot hole because they're only looking at the second floor. Okay. So we've so we've made mistakes. We need to be critically thinking. We need to be prepared to defend our position and right. to be able to talk rationally. Um, and to respect people like um, Professor Stephen Jones, a physicist, and, and people like myself who have a degree in engineering who can understand the technicalities and, and go into an article like that and, and debunk the debunkers, you mm-hmm. know, and, and say, you know, this is why this doesn't make sense. And, for instance, I'm not familiar with that particular one. I'm familiar with the ideas that you're putting forth of the diesel fuel. There were big tanks of diesel mm-hmm. uh, fuel in that building, and... The idea that they could have caught fire and burned hot and long and somehow weakened the steel sufficiently to cause a collapse is part of the official story that's being right. put out. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't hold up for a whole long list of reasons, but the, it's it's not that complicated. It comes down to you know, if, if diesel fuel was burning, what how would it affect the steel beams, even if it, if it was burning close enough to the beams to actually heat them up, uh, what would happen? And, of course, eventually the steel would get hot. And if it got hot enough, it eventually would get somewhat weakened. It would never melt because the uh, diesel fire was never get hot enough to melt steel. That's just pure science. It's just a pure fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only question would be how hot would it get and how much would the steel weaken? And could it weaken sufficiently to cause a building to collapse? And the answer is no. <laughs> it just couldn't. Um, as hot as the diesel fuel could possibly get any steel, if it burned long enough, close enough, and hot enough, would never weaken sufficiently to cause a building to collapse. One of the many reasons for that is that buildings are over-engineered, over-designed. And the factor of over-designing is a minimum of 3 to 1, often in the range of 5 to 1, sometimes as much as 10 or more to 1, meaning you can weaken or eliminate or remove, let's say, four-fifths of all the steel beams and columns, and the building will still stand. And most people, you know, that's not part of their knowledge base. You know, they right. just think, well, you weaken the building, it falls over. But when things are so over-engineered, which all structures are, all buildings, all bridges are always way over-engineered, they have to be for various kinds of disasters. Right. Earthquakes, fires. Yeah. Um, wind turns out to be, with buildings, one of the biggest factors. You have to design a large skyscraper to withstand hurricane-force winds and the loading on a big skyscraper is unbelievably big. Yeah. And so uh, the Twin Towers, supposedly the wind load over design was in the 10 to 20 to 1 range. Wow. Because you figure the surface area of a building that big right. is catching an amazing amount of wind. Yeah. It's like this huge sail. And so they had to over design that building for wind by a huge factor. Um, but just load bearing in terms of collapse is typically 5 to 1. So is just no way you're going to remove four-fifths of the strength of that steel just by burning a diesel fire by it. Um, But beyond that, let's say somehow (laughs) the fires burned hot enough and long enough and somehow weakened enough of the steel and maybe some of the building was damaged and somehow it all adds up that the building would somehow collapse. Let's just say hypothetically, even though it's impossible that that could happen. The building would fall very differently. It would fall, uh, number one, in the direction it was weakened. Generally, if you weaken a building, let's say they they claim that some debris hit Building 7 from Mm -hmm. the towers and that one side was damaged. Well, then the building would fall towards that weakened side. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't fall straight down. In fact, making a building fall straight down is one of the hardest things to do with a demolition and why they pay 
demolition companies millions of dollars to do right. these jobs because in order to bring a building straight down, you're basically asking that building to do what is specifically designed not to do, right. which is to fall in the direction where it's most of its strength is because it's designed to hold itself up. And so to fall straight down is just the opposite of what's most likely. Any building that collapses from any kind of problem whatsoever, earthquake, well, steel structure buildings have never fallen from fire, but if they were to, uh, or if somehow the wind could blow them over, right. anything that would happen would always topple sideways. Yeah, the, the plane went in here, and the top part would pop off, maybe, and there, or you right. know. And as a matter of fact, the top of build of, of Tower Two, which was, in, um, which was hit asymmetrically, did start to topple sideways, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then somehow that. It fell straight down after that. Right. But going back to Building 7, because yeah. it's the more clear example, mm-hmm. uh, because it wasn't hit by a plane, and so all there are to excuse a, a collapse is fire, um, the Building A would not fall straight down. It's just not possible. Um, number two, it wouldn't fall fast. If you think about, okay, you heat up a piece of metal hot enough to melt or to weaken to where it, to where it would start to collapse or, or bend, that happens gradually. It would just slowly start to bend. And what we observe at Building 7 and the towers is an instant collapse. One second, the building's standing completely intact. And the next instant, it's in total freefall collapse. And there's no in-between. There's no sag. There's no gradual onset. Again, that's only consistent with the demolition, and it's totally inconsistent with any kind of fire scenario that anyone can imagine. And then, of course, there's the speed of the collapse, which is right. free fall. If a building fell due to weakening of the steel, not only would it start gradually, but it wouldn't fall at, as if there was no strength whatsoever. It would fall at a gradual rate. Right. And there's a lot more, but those three alone are enough to say any explanation having to do with fire, diesel fire, any kind of fire, really, just can't possibly explain what we observe at Building 7. There's actually or at the towers for that matter, there are in fact a dozen different characteristics of those collapses consistent with demolition, and about half of them are consistent only with demolition. Mm-hmm. In other words, the only way to explain freefall is demolition. The only way to explain straight down is demolition. The only way to explain sudden at onset is demolition. So those three alone, each by themselves, prove demolition taken together prove overwhelmingly demolition and there's nine other reasons <laughs> right 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 now do you uh are you are you hip to uh when this nist uh, report is supposed to come out i mean wasn't it supposed to come out this year at some point yeah the first nest report on the towers of course is out all ten thousand pages of whitewash um but the uh building seven still hasn't been <laughs> released I actually haven't heard a release date. I think next year. Oh, okay. Um, and here we are, five years—well, over five years later. And what's the problem here? Yeah. You know? Well, the problem is they can't come up with a cover story that makes any sense. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, there's a lot of supposition about uh, where the—I mean, where would you? I mean, maybe, maybe would I? Maybe would you like to speculate on um, where the actual demolitions? Could have been taken taken place from you know it's like where the where the guy pushes the button. Well, there's a lot of speculation, which I think may be true, that uh, the 23rd floor of Building Seven, which was equipped for emergencies, it had its own air supply, its own water supply, its own power supply, shatterproof windows, mm-hmm. uh, was designed to take winds up to 150 miles an hour, and just you know it's like this was a disaster uh, preparedness center built for Mayor Giuliani. It cost millions of dollars. 
it would have been the perfect place to operate the demolitions of the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. Obviously not Building 7 itself. Right. Um, but couldn't that just be been done by maybe a cell phone call? I yeah. mean, that kind of yeah. basic... One, once a demolition is wired and, uh-huh. and programmed into the computer, which is how they're run, um, yeah, it's just you push one button. Yeah. It could have been done from anywhere. So they clear out of the building and, right. and hit the button. It seems likely, however, uh, in the case of Building 7, that it didn't go quite according to plan because uh, the building did not fall till 5.20 in the evening. By that time, almost all the dust had cleared from the towers falling. Uh, it clearly hadn't been hit by a plane. And so uh, it was photographed from multiple angles and multiple camera, mm-hmm. uh, multiple video cameras. So you think that, that was a mistake, that, that yeah. the timing of this, yeah. the collapse of 7? One of two things is almost certainly true about 7. Either it was supposed to be hit by a plane, and some would think 93 is. If you look at the timing, it would actually have been 175. That's a, that's a complicated story I could go into, and I will tonight. Sure. Okay. Um, but the um, the point is, it could have been intended to be hit by a plane, and then they'd have the same quote-unquote excuse for right. the building collapsing. But the other possibility that's equally um, valid in my mind is that they would have had they would have collapsed seven while New York was covered with dust. Right. Just so, maybe minutes, you know, after the collapse of the first two. Right. Within well, let's say within hours. the first. 20 minutes to half hour, as right. long as the, the whole area was covered with dust, so nobody would see it. Right. And all that people would know is that when the dust cleared, right. um, three buildings had fallen, and, and I guess Building 7 must have got hammered by debris. I guess it must have had big fires. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody would know the better, the wiser, because we wouldn't have seen it fall. We wouldn't have known it was free fall speed. We would have known it fell pretty straight down because it fell into its own footprint. But we wouldn't have known it was free fall speed. We wouldn't have known how small the fires were. We wouldn't have known how little damage it did receive from the towers. Um, We wouldn't have known any of that stuff. So there wouldn't be so many questions about Building 7 had it it fallen under the dust cloud. Do you know if um, uh, Dr. Jones... Um, or other people doing research on um, the thermate or the or the controlled demolitions have had any uh, you know better sourcing of materials to test. I know there were some question about the so the samples that they've they've gotten and. Um, Professor Jones has gotten some samples, fortunately, of of actual steel uh, that was recovered from the World Trade Center, and it's one of the support for his theory, as you mentioned, of thermate because the chemical. Uh, residues are consistent with thermate. There's certain chemicals in those residues that he's a- analyzed in his labs there at the college um, that are totally consistent with the use of thermate. Thermate is a form of thermite that includes sulfur and is even more effective at melting through steel. What's most interesting to me about Jones's ideas, which I think are right, about um, how the buildings were collapsed using thermate, is that thermate in most of its formulations is not an explosive. It's an incendiary. Okay. An incendiary is something that burns very fast, and in that case, very hot, uh, hot enough to, bro- to melt steel very readily. But it doesn't explode. And the reason that's of great significance, as uh, those of us that have studied the demolitions all these years, is that there's so little external evidence of demolition. If you compare Building 7, for instance, to any other demolition, uh, which I do in the video, I have a side-by-side with the landmark tower from Texas falling at the exact same speed, <laughs> as a demolition as, as Building 7 does. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one thing you notice that's different is there's all this these puffs of smoke coming out the side of the building, what are sometimes called squibs, evidence of the explosives within. Right. And yet with Building 7, there's very little of that. 
and even with the Twin Towers, they're there, but there's not as many of them and as much of them and as big as you would expect to bring down a tower that big. What you see at the top is this mushrooming cloud of explosiveness. Right. But um, below that, you don't see as much evidence of demolition as you would at any normal demolition. And that's been a question for about four years until Jones came along and made, said this thermate incendiary idea, which, again, is not an explosive, so it would not make external evidence of its burning. Oh, okay. It would, it would make some smoke, which eventually would come out, but that's within seconds before. So the basic idea is that you melt most of the beams with the thermate incendiary okay. to weaken the building. Again, four-fifths of the beams you can, you can pull out, and the building will still stand. Then use a small amount of explosives to pull out the final beams oh. to time the demolition and make very little evidence of explosives. So that's why uh, William Rod- Rodriguez, you know, hours, you know, at the, at the moment of the plane impact, he, he witnessed explosions, explosions in, the, in the basements, in the sub-basements, because it, it, maybe it was a staggered, you know, it was a staggered event over the course of, what, the 50 minutes that it stood, or the hour and a half, or however long those, those buildings... 56 minutes and 102. Okay. And, yeah, it does seem to be a staggered event. Uh, Rodriguez... Uh, noting explosions in the basement he's saying actually even prior to the first plane hitting but certainly around the time of the first right, plane around hitting the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, apparently massive explosions uh, and he's not the only one to report them because uh, there were there were windows blown out mm-hmm. on the first floor there were marble walls blown off the floor uh, for, on the first floor which were photographed in the Nade uh, video there were people that came out of there heavily injured um, down in the basement right and so, obviously, something happened down there of a massive event. And it does seem like another way they disguised the demolitions was to stagger it over time mm-hmm. and send off a few explosions here and a few there, which were reported many explosions by many fire people and, fi- and police and other emergency people, as well as uh, the civilians that were in the hmm. building. Um, That's interesting. So it does seem to be a somewhat staggered event as well. Interesting. Um, do you... Uh do you, I mean, I guess, I, I always go back to, like, uh, you know, like how, you know, how, you know, what the vision or, or of of this kind of activism is and, and what, you know, what can we, what, what are the good things that we can build from this tragedy of 9-11? Um, it, it, you know, you said in the lecture that I really liked that, that you can look at, uh, 9/11 as a catalyst toward po- you know positive social change as, as an opportunity for for all of us to look at our collective and individual dark sides and to use it as a catalyst for for social personal change you know all these different ways of uh, of ca- catalyst what what's your your vision or your trajectory towards that ch- you know you know what kind of change are you are you sort of careening toward well one, one way you can look at it, as you say, is, is sort of a, uh, I would call it collective shadow work. Mm-hmm. In other words, as, as individuals, if we're on a path of growth, we have to look at our dark side. We have to accept the fact that we all have a destructive side and a side that isn't so pretty that we normally hide. But that um, but's there and is part of us, and, and we have to accept it and, and own it and, and uh, harness it so that it doesn't uh, manifest destructively. Um, I think that's true on a collective scale, too. I think a society also has, uh, certainly we have a collective shadow, aside to um, this country. And again, not just this country. It's true pretty much everywhere. But we're here, and this is our our issue and our problem. Um, and 
many people probably listening to this program know that U.S.'s history is not all that nice, and, and we're not really the good guys that we've been programmed to believe. I mean, after all, the country was founded on genocide of the natives that lived here. Um, it was founded on slavery and so forth. And But more importantly, in more recent years, um, we have done all kinds of wars of aggression. Uh, you know, we basically stole a huge part of the where we're living right now from Mexico by the false flag uh, thing of the, the Spanish-American War, pretending that they had attacked us when, in fact, we were on their land. Right. And then we went to war with them and squashed them and then said, oh, in the treaty, you have to sell us all this land. And, of course, it ended up being some of the most valuable land on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have a very nice history, and it, and it does come to more recent years through Vietnam and and on and on, and, and uh, a lot of stuff in South America. It's a, it's a long, sad history. Yeah, and and, um, and and many Americans just don't want to really look at that. They want to kind of hide behind the flag, and well, we're the good guys, and we bring freedom and democracy wherever we go. Hey, the Chargers won this Sunday. You know? Yeah, right. And, and yeah, let's watch sports and go shopping, and and uh, this isn't this doesn't affect me. Right. And you know we can't go on that way it's it's clear that we've reached a point in our evolution in our history where too many things are kind of at a critical point whether it's the environment whether it's the extreme expense and destructiveness of war um, the list goes on and if we just continue this way if we just sort of try to pretend it's okay and we can go shopping and watch the game uh, we're headed for some deep trouble yeah and a lot of people are starting to see that now, and many people have seen it. And so so we need change. And, and part of that change is to own our collective shadow of, of what this country really is about. Um, and and um, 9-11 is the kind of perfect vehicle for doing that. Because if once we accept, as more and more people are, that our government literally mass-murdered 3,000 of us to carry out its agenda of empire, its agenda of world domination as outlined clearly in the papers of the Project for the New American Century, as well as many other places. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is the agenda, and this is what hap- is happening. And uh, it's up to us as citizens to, to stand up and say, no, this is not where we want this country to go. This is not where, where we want our taxes to be spent. And we want to create a better world, a more positive world, a world that our, we feel that our children can grow up you know, happy and healthy instead of wondering if they even have a world to grow up in. And so uh, the 9-11 thing is a way to sort of catalyze, kind of sort of break loose the inertia and to get people to realize the intensity and the depth of the problems so that uh, hopefully they'll turn off the game one afternoon and and go out and do something and uh, skip one shopping trip and become a little more active and and, uh, get involved. By uh, um, Is it it, it just about then all of us, you know, looking. You know, is it about our na- then us getting together with you know our communities and our neighbors? How I've become extremely distrustful of political parties, and uh, at this event last night, there was actually a politician there and someone who actually ran, and I and I immediately was suspicious, you know, very sus- suspicious of her. And I and I felt kind of bad in my in, but then again I just feel like there's no there's no um, redemption at all in the political process anymore. It's all completely uh, corrupt. Corrupt. Yeah. And and there's the only you know like the Bob Marley line you know total destruction is the only solution. <laughs> and I really start I'm really beginning to feel that way. Yeah. And I don't want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
there's a lot of good in our society and a lot of, a lot of good things about it. You know, it's just it's hard for me to be that discriminating, especially when there is so much disinformation, misinformation, uh, COINTELPRO, NSA tapping our phones, and and and. and on top of first world alienation that, that, you know, I drive in my car and we're all real close to each other, you know, cars width away, but we're just in our separate little cars. And, and so I just see this, these compounding effects that just keep us isolated and apart from each other. Do you have any, like, <laughs> like, well, you know, how can we, how can we bring, really get together? I mean, cause you know, there's a lot of us, there's millions of us now that really do are, are aware of nine eleven and, and might be kind of, Okay, well, what now? What do I do? How do I, you know, what yeah. what is the, the? Well, I understand the problems you're saying all too well, and <laughs> uh, I, I can relate to many of them a lot. Um, political parties, for instance, you know, we have re- we have the single party Republicans, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. a- and they're both almost equally corrupt. And people are a little excited about the recent election, and we got some Democrats in there, and yeah, hopefully it'll supply a little balance. But the first thing they say is we're not going to do uh, impeachment, right? Um, we're not going to defund the war. It's like, uh, excuse me, is that what we voted for? (laughs) And so, yeah, the corruption is wide base. And, you know, you can't even blame most of the politicians because most of them are caught in a system that demands that they raise immense amounts of money for all the TV advertising that that political campaigns require. That's why clean money campaigning like they have in Arizona is so important. Um, But anyway, it it can seem overwhelming. It can seem a little hopeless that, that things are so corrupt. Even though we know there's a few individuals, uh, Dennis Kucinich comes to mind, that seem to know what's going on and are not corrupt, but they seem so outnumbered. Um, One answer I would give is that uh, you you started to speak about it right at the beginning, is localism. is to start locally, to deal with things on a local basis, because that's where we can have power, that's where we can have impact, that's where we can make change. And for instance, the the kind woman we were with last night, you know, if she had got elected, (laughs) that would help. (laughs) Yeah, it would have helped, yes. And and maybe next time she will, and and maybe she will have an impact Mm -hmm. with her phone calls and so forth. But the point is that uh, locally we can make a difference. And, And you saw that happen with the Patriot Act. You know, they, they, they passed this incredibly draconian, fascist law of the Patriot Act. And gradually, over time, locally, um, city after city, and then counties and even states passed laws to reverse some of that. Now, it wasn't a total solution, but it does show you that some things can work. And they do start at the grassroots. They do start <laughs> locally. They start with individuals. They start with small groups. And they grow from there. And that's how 9-11 is going. That's how... Vote reform, uh, overcoming vote fraud is happening. That's how clean money is happening. And it does work. It does take time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. It can be fun. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a struggle. In fact, I I, um, I oppose the word struggle in in terms of political. I I use the word effort Mm -hmm. because struggle is an inherently negative word. And what we need is a lot of effort and ideally no struggle. You know, just fun, involved... um, concerted and ongoing effort um, does pay off. It does work. And even though things seem pretty overwhelming at this point, because there's so much that's gone so bad, that's just sort of where it's deteriorated to, through through apathy, through um, the lack of involvement of too many people for too long, and letting basically corporations rule the world, um, as David Corton's book from the 90s was titled, uh, When Corporations Rule the World. And I'd like to use that as a segue sure, sure. <laughs> to David Corton's uh, current work. Um, 
Uh, you may at least be familiar with the title of his book, When Corporations Rule the World. I read it uh, about 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Well, I never read it. To me, the title said it all. Right. <laughs> but I'm I'm very familiar and very supportive of a movie that's out now called The Corporation. Uh-huh. Right. And I strongly urge everyone that hasn't seen it to see it to show it in local showings. Um, it's one of the most important things to know. Uh, Why We Fight is another movie that's incredibly important. From Freedom to Fascism is the third movie I'll re- mention just off the cuff here um, to see and to show and to make sure other people see as a way of educating ourselves as to what's really going on yeah. and what the nature of the problems are. But betting, getting back to David Corton and his book, uh, When Corporations Rule the World, he wrote another book in the meantime, and then he just finished a book and has now just finished a tour um, called The Great Turning. And it's a the most important book I've read in any recent times. Uh, it basically oops c- puts our problems and our situation in context that goes back 5000 years wow. and basically says the reason the problems we have are so big and why they seem so ongoing i mean we've been dealing with war for 5000 years we've been dealing with top down hierarchical structures of control through institutions through corporations through governments for 5000 years We've been dealing with this basically dominator uh, model for roughly 5,000 years. It turns out only 5,000 years. In other words, in the, the history that we don't learn as much about in school, prior to 5,000 years, uh, humanity and the way the world ran was by and large very different. Yeah. And it was more the model of partnership, more the model of the equality of the, ma- the male and the female, the masculine and feminine energy, and even on a spiritual level, if you go there, the god and goddess energies. Mm-hmm. Uh, existing and coexisting in a partnership and an equality. Much like the research of Ryan Eisler? Ryan Eisler's mm-hmm. work, The Chalice and the Blade, mm-hmm. was one of the seminal books and is one of the main inspiration for David Corton's The Great uh-huh. Turning. Uh-huh. But he calls that book uh, by that name, which was not his original name, um, because he feels, as many of us do, that we are involved in some kind of a fundamental and profound shift in consciousness, in, in the very nature of, of who we are as a humanity. What exactly that is, nobody really knows. But a lot of people sense it. And some people have put names to it. And The Great yeah. Turning is one. My favorite uh, name is The Great Awakening. Yeah. And I, and I strongly believe there is a shift of consciousness going on. There is a, an awakening in a, of a sort going on where people are becoming not just more aware of what's going on in the world through, for instance, things like 9-11. Right. But in terms of getting off autopilot, you know, getting off of just being driven by unconscious drives, of just operating in a kind of reflexive, reactive way. You know, we're talking right. about problem, reaction, solution, and you're, you're correct. You pull the reaction part out of the equation, and the equation drops away. The reaction is us. Right. And they're automatic reactions. They're reflective reactions. Right. They're reptile brain. They're fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened after 9/11. It was it it brought it was a, it was a psychological operation whose right. purpose was to terrify the American people into supporting this endless war on terror, which, by the way, is supposed to last for our lifetime, folks. Is that really what we want? Um, and 9/11 is the solution to that: is to break the lie right at its source and say we were not attacked by Arabs; we were attacked by our government. Yeah. Um, but in any event, this idea of becoming more aware of our reflexive nature, of our automatic responses, and overriding them yeah. consciously mm-hmm. and saying, oh, yeah, now I'm scared. But rather than just wanting to strike back or wanting to run away, 
uh, and go shopping <laughs> or watch the game um, to uh, to say no this is important I need to stay awake I need to pay attention and I need to act out of what I right. will learn and, and know and that is happening worldwide I really strongly believe that that it's a, a gradual change again and it can be confusing and scary well it's <laughs> I it's, noticed that my, my own personal process of awakening it's confusing and scary sometimes. well it's the unknown <laughs> yeah. you know we all have a fear of the unknown right. that's just mm-hmm. intrinsic and mm-hmm. it's another sort of reflexive fear that we have to become more conscious of and say oh well, I'm afraid of the unknown why well because and, and answer that question mm-hmm. why you know because well it feels out of control right. uh, I don't know what to do or I'm confused. Yeah. Uh, confusion, by the way, is feeling a lot of emotions simultaneously, different oh. emotions. It's, it's, it's a combination. Uh, and, and so to become conscious of things like that, well, what is confusion? It's right. feeling many emotions simultaneously. Well, what do you do about that? Well, you sort them out. Well, let's see, I'm feeling fear, I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling anxious, you know, you sort, and you deal with those emotions one at a time uh-huh. to, to clear the emotion, to con- clear the confusion. But the point is, these kinds of awakenings are happening all over, and yeah. they're happening universally. And it's a little hard to see wh- at when we're in the midst of it, and when day-to-day things are happening, and, and, uh, but if you step back, and you start looking back, for instance, where have we come since the 60s? You know, 60s were seen as a time of revolutionary change. It was really the start of a revolution of, again, of consciousness, ultimately. It was the raising of consciousness, right? The expansion of consciousness was terms that were used during that time. And awareness, for instance, of the Vietnam War at that time, of um, women's rights, of civil rights, all these kinds of awarenesses becoming more conscious and more aware. But it was just a beginning. Yeah. And it did really actually continue uh, through the 70s. Uh, it seemed like there was a setback in the 80s because on the surface things were a setback. Right. <laughs> the Reagan years, right? <laughs> right? But in reality the consciousness shift continued and it continues to this day and will continue for, you know, essentially forever. Right. Um, but it's, a, it's not just any old change. It's, it's a very rapid if you look at, again, mapping the changes, mm-hmm. say, from the 50s to the present, and you look at, for instance, specific issues like, let's say, civil rights or let's say women's rights or any of the things that were uh, kicked into gear in the 60s, we've come a long way. I mean, we've got yeah. a long way to go yet right. on many of those issues, but from where we've been to where we are now is an incredibly rapid change. Again, if you stand back and look at history and the, the centuries of gradual change that happened prior, and it's still accelerating. And it will probably continue to accelerate in terms of the pace of change, which, of course, in itself is a little scary. It's right? Like, can I keep up? You know, uh, can I even keep up with my email these days? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <laughs> um, so it does bring up some fear and apprehension. But again, as we as we talk amongst ourselves, mm-hmm. as we share our collective wisdom, as we work together in partnership as teams, rather than this lone wolf thing that has been the historical pattern. Um, it's a big challenge. And again, that comes down to individual challenges. A lot right. of lone wolves, for instance, in the 9-11 movement yeah. who have been somewhat counterproductive mm-hmm. in their sort of ego stance of, you know, well, I'm going to be the lone wolf. And, right. uh, you know, Jim Fenster saying, I'm going to control scholars for 9-11 truth right. all by myself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be the one. 
And those times are over, and they don't work anymore. And they actually haven't worked for a long time. <laughs> um, but the, it's the model that we've had of this singular supreme authority of, right. of the hierarchy. The savior or whatever, yeah, and the hierarchy. The hierarchy, you know, the top down, and I control you because I have the power, the money, the gun, or whatever. And that's what has to change, and that's what is changing. And that's what. So, in terms of direction and where to go, um, the one key word I would always keep in mind is partnership. Yeah, and the idea of the equality of partnership, where a group like your local 9/11 group gets together, and there's there's people that are champions. In other words, it's not there's, there will no longer be leaders. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do you be a leader when everyone's an equal? Yeah, and how do you, for instance, uh, operate in consensus, which is the step beyond democracy? Yeah, and much harder to implement. It takes much more consciousness. Well, and it also awareness. takes a decentralized. Uh, you know, smaller groups and not these huge, you know, nations and more like a state and local and right. uh, so, level. So, so localism, again, yeah. is part yeah. of the solution, uh, doing more and more locally and quit asking daddy in right. Washington right. to take care of us. No, we need to take care of ourselves and and uh, make things work on a local level because it will, quote unquote, trickle up. But, you know, it will eventually reach the higher levels of, of this mm-hmm. currently very corrupt government. Particularly, again, as we locally, for instance, implement clean money elections, then we start getting politicians that actually represent the people rather Mm -hmm. than the corporations and the money. And instant runoff voting. That's one of my... Absolutely. (laughs) It's so important. Instant runoff voting would be great. You could actually have a third party or four or five or six. And you know, most of the rest of the world has stuff like this. I know. Most of the rest of the world has uh, exclusively paper ballots with exclusively hand counting. Um, instant runoff voting and um, what's the uh, parallel to that? The There's um, uh, a parallel to that in voting that we obviously need. And, and these are the things to work for and can be done locally and are being done locally. Um, it, up where I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, San Francisco is, has just passed that. I think Berkeley has it. There's a lot of local places that are getting instant runoff voting. And... Um, uh, proportional representation. Oh, That's proportional the other term, representation. Which they have again all over the world. Mm-hmm. It just, just this country is a little behind the curve. We th- we tend yeah. to think of ourselves as leaders, but we're unfortunately behind the curve on one of the, some of the most important things. Ken, I got to let you go because you got to go to this uh, presentation you're doing tonight uh, right. here in San Diego. But thanks for coming in. It's been it's been really great. Absolutely, really, really, my pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. We're gonna go out on a Chet Atkins song. This is uh, I'm my own grandpa. Have a good night. Bye bye. Many, many years ago, when I was 23, I was married to a widow who was pretty as can be. Now this widow had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red. My father fell in love with her, and soon the two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law, really changed my life. For my daughter was now my mother, because she was my father's wife. And to complicate the matter, even though it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. Yes, I did. My little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad, and so became my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if he were my uncle, then that also made him brother. 
of the widow's grown-up daughter, who of course was my stepmother, don't you know? Now father's wife then had a son who kept them on the run, and he became my grandchild, for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother, and it makes me blue. Because although she is my wife, she's my grandmother too. Now if my wife is my grandmother, then I'm her grandchild. And every time I think of it, it nearly drives me wild. Cause now I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As husband of my grandmother, I'm my own grandpa. Sounds fun.